0: So I had birthdays on the brain this morning. Happy birthday to Sawyer, a little bit late, but happy birthday and Cameron as well. Hey. I uh, <clears throat> was thinking as we go back to Revelation chapter eleven, and we read all fourteen verses this morning. And we won't get that far today, but I uh, started three weeks ago, if you guys recall, and and came up short of finishing what I intended to share and I feel like one of the little kids at the birthday party with the blindfold on who gets a shot at the pinata swings and absolutely whiffs and everybody else did so I get to come back with a second shot and take a whack at it again and get some of the uh the good stuff out of it (laughs) excuse me so turn with me again if you would in your bibles to revelation chapter 11 we're going to look again this morning at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Let's ask the Lord to lead us again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are doing something amazing, in redeeming a people for yourself. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear that we would see things from your perspective. We pray that you would open up your word to us and our understanding of it. Father, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. The spirit of God would convict us as needed. we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful and diligent to do what you have called us to do, that you would prepare your church. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. So remember, we since moved in our study in the book of Revelation from the study of seals to that of trumpets. And in our study of the trumpets, we find ourselves in the scenes of the interlude again. The sixth trumpet was pictured. In Revelation, chapter nine, and verse 13, and, and from that point on, we we have this break or this pause between the announcement of the seventh trumpet and what we find in the sixth. And we looked at in Revelation chapter 10, the mighty angel and the little scroll. And there is a continuation of that scene into what we're looking at in Revelation chapter 11. And we tend to think these are different disconnected pictures that we're to see, but I want you to see that they're from the same album, if you will. These are pictures of the same event from a different perspective And they're communicating truth to who primarily? Who is the book of Revelation written to? Church. Church. We find that it's written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. And it's certainly for the benefit of God's people um, until he returns. We looked at or we started uh, last week in... Or three weeks ago, actually, most of our time we spent on understanding the who and the what of the first two verses. And John is told to rise here and measure the temple. And we established um, in our study that this is a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. So I want to move on from that this morning to to develop that a little bit further. John is told to, to rise and measure three things. He's told verses 1 and 2, he was given a a measuring rod like a staff, a tape measure, if you will, and was told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. (laughs) Excuse me. Where he's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Last time we met, we looked at Ezekiel 40 and Ezekiel 40 starts a very long, protracted view of what we're seeing here. It runs for eight chapters. You want to do some study on your own, and I strongly encourage it. Read Ezekiel 40 through 48. But we have this this uh, beautiful picture or this picture of of this beautiful habitation of the most high God. And Revelation 21 tells us. What that habitation is, if you look in Revelation 21, verse 9, we're a ways away from that, but we will get there eventually. It says this, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of of, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And John is told here to rise and measure what he sees. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning as to what that means. So to measure the temple the altar, and those who worship there. And this is just an overview here on our screen of what this chapter covers. We're only going to get as far as verses 1 and 2 this morning as we finish up what we started three weeks ago. But first he said, measure the temple. Measure the temple. When we say that God is everywhere, what does that mean theologically? What's the word that we use? Omnipresent. Yes. Guys are on your coffee this morning. Awake and alert. I will do my best to keep you there. We say that God is omnipresent. What does that mean? Well, it means that the spirit of God is present where? where, Everywhere. There is a hotel chain called the Omni Hotel Chain. Have you ever heard of that? Aptly named. What are they communicating with the branding of their name? You, you don't need to travel and stay with anybody else because... If you're going there, we're there, aptly named. But, but there's an interesting picture here that we need to understand, and that is that although God is omnipresent, he is everywhere at the same time, and David asks the question, where can I go to get away from you? Um, we, we studied Ahab this morning, and Ahab did his best to get away from God and his prophecy, and what happened? That arrow found the way randomly found that little, and by the way, God is in the crease of the armor. God is omnipresent, but uniquely resides intimately with his church. So what is the difference? We talked uh, this morning about in our men's Bible study, we started studying grace last week, and we'll pick that up next week. But in our study next week, we'll talk about the difference between common grace and saving grace. Common grace being the rain and the sun comes on who? The just and the unjust alike. God is is good in his grace to everyone. There are beneficiaries of it. But if I were to ask you, when we think about our own children, illustrate this better. Do do I treat your children like I would treat my own, (laughs) right? My children, hopefully they would say I treat them well, but opinions may vary. But if you think about how we view children, I, I was struck by something our president said. He was speaking to, a, I think, a group of teachers, and he talked about the fact that our children are not our own. They belong to the community. Was that true? No, because if our children belong to our community, they cease to be special, don't they? If they're not my children; they're no longer special. There is a difference between our children and other children. Now, I, I would happily feed all of the children in this room a hot dog for lunch, and you guys would appreciate it. But it's not the same as me being a father to. The children in that second to last row. Why? Well, because my love for my children is special. God's residence with his people, his church is special. Yes, he's omnipresent everywhere, but it has specific relevance to the church. Why? Because the scripture said he has sealed us. What does that mean? He's taken up residence. How? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit indwells the regenerate child of God, lives on the inside of us, has taken up residence <clears throat> and he has developed and uniquely resides intimately with his church in this world. I want to encourage you with this. If you look at Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 it says in him that is Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that he who were so that he who were or we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed him we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What does it mean to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? If I were to ask you this morning, how do you know that you are a child of God? You may open up your Bible and get the front cover and Say, well, my parents gave me or gifted me in this Bible on my spiritual birth date, and it's written in the front of my Bible. That's how I know that I belong to God. How do we know? How do I really know? Spirit of God must indwell you. And what, is that? what does that look like? Well, if any man be in Christ, he is what? New creation. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That is a picture of regeneration in which the spirit of God takes a spiritually dead sinner, gives them life. We're going to talk about that a little bit as we get further on. The first resurrection, if you will. How do we know that God is going to resurrect his people when he returns? He says it right here. We have a down payment. When you go to buy a house, the scripture says, or what a realtor will tell you, if you go to buy a house, what do you need? Earnest money. money. Is that money that means business? What does that mean? Yes, that's what it's really talking about. Earnest money is money to prove to the seller that you intend to carry through with the purchase possession, that piece of property or that house. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment or the earnest money to demonstrate God's intent to you to, to fully complete your redemption. Now, is our redemption complete as we sit here this morning? There's, there's yes and no. Yes and no. Good answer. Theologically accurate, brother. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We're as good as there our position is secured but in the process of time what what is yet to happen sanctification we will be sanctified and we will be glorified this this body will put off death god will change us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye so the promises of the promise of god is for a perfect union and fellowship with himself a full restoration if you will At redemption or his return, and everything that was lost by sin at the founding of this world will be done away with. And and I want to take us back for just a minute because this is so important for us to understand as we go to the rest of this chapter the promise that God made to the seven churches. We looked at each one of those churches, and I want to take just a few minutes to go back for just a second because I, I really think it will help us. To understand this, God promises to the seven churches, to those who conquer or those who overcome, he gives them specific promises. Now, I know you remember each and every one of them, so I'm just wasting my time by rehashing them, but for the sake of us with bad memories, we'll do it. Seven different, unique ways that the promise of God is made to the bride of Christ and their reward. Is the eternal fellowship and intimacy with God, and I want you to see this as I read through these. I want you to see the correlation to marriage. Now we talk. We're talking about the bride of Christ, and I looked at Revelation chapter twenty-one. There's a reason that God gives us the imagery of marriage. It's important. So notice this correlation. Revelation two seven. <clears throat> This is written to the church at Ephesus, the believers, the saints there. To those who con- to the one who conquers, I will grant the eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, what does that what does that imagery do for us? The tree of life is mentioned in Genesis when Adam and Eve sin. They're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And what happens? God places his angel there to stand guard on it. They're barred from entrance. And we see the effects of the curse. What is God doing here with this picture? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a picture of restored intimacy. Okay. When we when we open up our bibles and we begin, we begin to read in the book of Genesis what are Adam and Eve doing prior to their their fall <clears throat> What are they doing in their free time When Adam is not tending to the garden where's God with them Scripture the scripture des- describes it as them walking together in the garden in the cool of the day and it harkens my thoughts to one of my favorite hymns, which is in the garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. There is a picture of incredible intimacy with Adam and Eve and God. And this is taking the church of Ephesus right back to that. To him that overcomes, there will be... Restored and renewed intimacy. Now, let me ask you a question. We talk about, you're going to see the correlation to marriage. Does God intend for husband and wife to have shared intimacy? If your marriage isn't intimate, something's wrong. And there's a lot there we can unpack, but for sake of time, I'm going to press on. Number two, Revelation 2.11 to the church in Smyrna. To the one that conquers or the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? First death is physical, physical, second death, spiritual. There's a picture here of shared revel of shared resurrection. Why? Why is that? Well, Christ is the forerunner, isn't he? He's entered in and already walked that path for us. John chapter 11, Jesus said, speaking to Mary, remember when, when uh, Lazarus dies and, and Mary is, is uh, rightfully torn up? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, what? Yet shall he live. The down payment for you to know that that is true. God has given you that down payment. If you're a saint, if you are a child of God, you have it now. How do I know that eternal life awaits me when I die? How do I know? It's already given me spiritual life. Spirit of God has taken up residence, but it's shared life. That's the picture here. Does God intend for husband and wife to share life? You're not sharing life with your spouse. Number three, shared access. Look at Pergamum, Revelation two seventeen. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Oh, on our screen, you have a picture of the, the, the tabernacle, the layout of the temple. Here, <clears throat> where is manna found in this picture? Holy of holies, and where would it be in the holy of holies? We are the ark of the covenant. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, which is there. How do I get there? I gotta, I have to get in there. And and when we look at the imagery, it's very vivid for the early church as they think about the Old Testament, because the early church is studying what scripture? The Old Testament. That picture is incredibly vivid today. You will give. To your people, to eat of the hidden manna. What is he telling them? It doesn't get any more intimate with God than being right there. Well, how do I get there? What's that? I have to be his, but I have to have a great high priest that that gives me access into that place where I'll never be able to sniff it. Won't be able to touch it. In fact, the scripture tells us if you touch the Ark of the Covenant, what happens? Die. You see the picture that, that God is giving his church? To him that overcomes, you will eat of the hidden manna. I will bring you in to absolute intimate fellowship. Israel didn't get to see that. The high priest got to see that once a year. Once a year. And we find that when Jesus died, what happened? That veil. the picture there is clear the one that gets you there is the one that just died we see the picture of shared access number four shared victory or inheritance look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 26 to the church in Thyatira the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him will I give authority over, over the nations and he will rule them And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a picture here of an inheritance. When my my father died in 2019, went to be with the Lord, he didn't leave monetarily or possessions hardly anything. And there are some that would would think about that and look at that and say, "Well, was he a bad dad was he a bad dad?" So he didn't leave he didn't leave me anything. very little. The sum of his life was not in his things. it wasn't. but he he left an amazing legacy that was spiritual, and he left it a, a legacy that mattered. It wasn't about stuff. It wasn't about possessions. And, and listen, it's fantastic if, you're, if God has blessed you to the point that you can leave behind something for your children when the Lord takes you, that's fine. But as mom and dad, if our concern is what we leave behind to our kids materially, we're missing it. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, listen to this, that is imperishable. What are your dollars doing in the bank? Are they imperishable? They're devaluing as we speak. The inheritance that we have from God is imperishable. It's untouchable. That's what we need to to focus on leaving to our kids. That's what will change their life eternally. Number five, look at this. Revelation chapter three, verse five. The Sardis, for the one who conquers, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What does God promise the church? Shared righteousness. By the way, in terms of correlation to marriage, if you are not challenging your spouse to greater holiness, you are failing. And it starts primarily with us as men first. The purpose of marriage, and there are many purposes to marriage, but the primary purpose of marriage is the sanctification of those in it. It's true. If I am not being challenged in my sanctification, in my marriage, something's not right. You want your spouse to be more holy? Then you need to be more holy. You want your spouse to to be focused on pleasing God? Then we, me, I need to be focused in that way. The one who con- the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. What is this talking about? This is talking about the righteousness of Christ that beautifies the bride. We, you know, you think about the wedding ceremony, and we we walk in after the ceremony, and they introduce the bride and the groom. But even before that happens, when the bride is is standing at the end of the aisle, every one of us men who are married remember that moment. If you. Re- Everything else about the wedding ceremony is a blur to me, but I remember that moment when I, when I turn around and see Mrs. Layu, not yet Mrs. Leu, at, at the end of that aisle, getting ready to walk down to me, I remember that like it was yesterday. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. What makes the bride beautiful? What makes the bride beautiful? The bride being? body of Christ it is the righteousness of Christ that beautifies us and the picture here is I will confess I will confess his name before my father and before his angels you know what the picture is dad look at my bride I'm introducing my bride to dad how proud I am that's that's what's pictured here the, char- the challenge for us in the church, when we think about marriage, is that our purpose in marriage should be to increase each other's holiness, to drive each other to Christ. It didn't. It doesn't take very long after you get married to realize that you did not marry perfection. And I say that with all <laughs> due respect to Mrs. Layu, but Mrs. Layu knows it very well. We realize that very quickly, don't we? In our younger years, we think, oh, so-and-so will make such a great spouse. They're perfect. No, they're not. (laughs) They're not. And all we need to do is look in the mirror. Christ is making his bride perfect. She will be without any spot, without any blemish, and the world will see it one day in its full picture. Then look at number 6. This this one's this one's great. To the church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3 verse 12. The one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Listen to this. I will write on him the name of my God. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down which comes down from God out of out of heaven in my own new name. There's another hymn that comes to mind. There's a new name written down in glory and it's mine oh yes it's mine i'm not going to sing with my sins forgiven i am bound for heaven nevermore to rome it's interestingly both of those hymns came to mind they were both written by the same guy austin miles how about that um honorable mention there i'm sure he cares today <laughs> but i want you to see this the body of Christ, the bride, gets a new name. It's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? Now, in our culture, historically, and by the way, it's changing. But when you marry, what happens to the last name of your wife? Now, we're we're progressive now, so we hyphenate it so that the world knows we're a couple. But the picture here is not of a couple. The picture here is of one. That's why the changing of the name. Again, these are all pictures of intimacy that God intends for his body, his church. Shared identity. I will write on him the name of my God. What does a name mean? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I will mention In a few minutes, in John 17, the picture in John 17, if you want to know what intimacy looks like, read John 17. It is a picture of the intimate relationship between father and son on full display, and we get to see it. In John 17, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them, this is verse 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be what? One. Even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What is in a name? Name is identity. When I look at you, any any one of you, and and my kids will laugh at this because it takes a few to get to the one I'm trying to get. I used to laugh when mom would holler up the steps and and she's trying to get one of us kids to respond. And she starts running through the list of names until she finally gets to the one that she wants. And I understand it now. It's from the lack of sleep that you get. (laughs) As a parent. But, but what's, what scripture is telling us here and communicating to us is we have a new identity. Because we are now one in Christ. In fact, we see that that picture of that wall being broken down in Ephesians where where Paul tells Jew and Gentile that the wall of division is broken down because what, what Christ has done to remove that veil. So that we can have fellowship in the body of Christ regardless of our ethnic background. Regardless of where God has saved us from. We're now brought into a oneness with God that supersedes all of that. But we have a new or changed identity. And and listen, this whole concept of husbands and wives having separate bank accounts, you're missing it. You're missing it. That is not oneness in marriage. Think about what we're talking about here. Shared life. Shared intimacy, shared access, shared victory or shared inheritance, shared righteousness or sanctification, shared beautification, if you will. Speaking of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, shared identity. And then lastly, shared kingship. Look at Laodicea, Revelation 321, the one who conquers, I will grant Him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It is a mutual victory over the enemies of Christ and a mutual reigning. We don't deserve that. Think about um, that book that we did in our men's Bible study on atonement, and it made a lasting impression on me. You read the account of Hosea. And God tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute. You think, that is not marriage advice that we would give our children. And he does it for a very specific reason. She's unfaithful to him. Well, that's predictable. Yes. And he says, I want you to love her. And and at the height of this story, this image that God is giving to Israel to show them their infidelity to him. Their spiritual idolatry to him, the picture is heightened when Hosea takes food to the door of the man who is living with his wife, knocks on it and says, My wife is in need. Please give this food there. A mind blowing picture. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We are that prostituted wife who is unfaithful to her spouse and God in his grace saves us, beautifies us, and brings us in to his family. That's the picture here, and then gives us intimacy with him. We who were enemies and alienated from him, he has given intimacy to, and then he tells us we'll share in his reign. We'll sit with him. We see the disciples arguing over we're missing the point. Who's going to sit at the right hand of the Lord Jesus? We are missing the point. The point is, is we have a seat at the table. We should be eating crumbs from underneath of it. Well, just by way of encouragement to the single, the unmarried or, or the widowed, unless you think I'm preaching a marriage, uh, a sermon on marriage. This is a message to the marriage or to the married and leaves me out. Not at all. And I want, I want you to understand this. Please don't miss this. Marriage as God's defining it, as he defines it, should be defended. It should be exonerated. It should be celebrated. It should be aggrandized. It should be affirmed. Why? Because it's God's type and shadow. And therefore good. But don't mourn this. Listen to this carefully. Don't mourn over the loss or the withholding of the shadow when you have the substance. You understand that? Don't mourn over the loss of the shadow when you have the substance. The substance of the picture of marriage is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that marriage is, is a picture of or a shadow, a type? Because scripture tells us that in Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees come to Jesus to tempt him, to test him. And they say, is, Israeli law, Jewish law, custom says that if a man dies, what happens His his widow is to marry his brother. Here's, a, man, here's a, a scenario where there's seven brothers. They all die. What are the odds? And, and they're trying to test Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? If you read in uh, Mark chapter 12, this whole conversation takes place between verses 18 through 27. But for time's sake, I'll skip ahead to verse 23. In the resurrection, Jesus is answering them. When they rise again, this is the question: Whose wife will she be? For he had, for the seven, had her as wife. The first question that they should be asking is, why did God tell Israel to establish this law? Why? Why? It's a good question. Yes, but it was about inheritance. Okay? Who was Israel's inheritance? And type in shadow. This is a picture. Jesus Christ. And the picture was that if you are in the covenant, you do not get left out your husband your your husband the the man dies. this wife is left on her own. is she to be excluded from the covenant? No, she would then move to the next oldest brother. The picture is very clear. you don't get left out, but they missed it. they didn't see what what was going on here. This law was to demonstrate the to Israel that the inheritance is Christ. And nobody in the, in the covenant was excluded from the inheritance. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know your Bible. Now, these, these men were well learned, weren't they? If you're well learned, you say learned. You don't say learned. <laughs> these were learned men. And Jesus said, you don't you don't know Diddley. You don't you don't see it. I'm right here in front of you and you do not see it. You don't know me or my word. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Why did, why did Jesus tell us this about marriage? We'd love to think that our marriage continues when we go into glory. Think about what happens when our spouse dies and we are on this side of glory waiting to see. Marriage is a picture. It is a type. It is a shadow. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. How Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When we are with Christ, shadow and type go away. Marriage goes away. Well, is is that a knock on marriage in this life? No, it's not to say that marriage is not good. It's great. But it's it's a picture. It's like saying Israel messed up by establishing the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Is that bad? No, it wasn't bad. But all of it was a picture of what? The coming sacrifice. Once Jesus came, once the Messiah was on the scene, once he, he was nailed on that cross and gave himself as a ransom for many, that type and shadow in the Old Testament ceased to matter. It's a beautiful picture at the time, a bloody picture, but a beautiful one. Do we go back to that? Why? Because we have the substance. My point to you that are widowed, unmarried, single, looking to, hoping to get married. Don't miss the substance of the wedding, the substance of the marriage. It's Christ. And you as a saint, as a child of God, single right now, need to be thinking about my intimacy with God. Young people. If you think about marriage and you're thinking about what that will be like, some of you are giving me the hairy eyeball, don't even want to talk about it. The most important thing for you to do is you get ready for your spouse. Hear me on this. Focus on your intimacy with Christ. If you focus on your intimacy with Christ, then the rest of it will work out. We can have great debates over dating or, or courtship or Fill in the blank. The church has had lots of those great debates and they're important and we should talk about them. By the way, unless dad blesses it, it ain't happening. Mm -hmm. My point is, is is our focus must be on our fellowship with Christ, because that's what it's all about. Don't miss that. We put we put our boyfriend or our girlfriend on a pedestal when we think, oh, they're so dreamy. (laughs) they are the epitome of everything that's great no they're a type and a shadow of what is great and the minute we understand that our marriages make sense and they begin to be fulfilling for us in this life but don't look for for the fulfillment in our marriage to be from anything but Christ because it's not gonna it's not gonna happen I can't fulfill my wife She cannot perfectly fulfill me. Christ can. The church is the bride and where the bridegroom resides. And that's the picture here. Church is the bride. Where is the bridegroom? Intimate fellowship. Paul illustrates this further through the physical union of marriage. And I will be tactful here, parents. First Corinthians chapter six All things are lawful to me, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, let's ask the question, because Paul is going to answer it here. Why? If you ask that question in the 1960s, what would be the answer our culture would give you? Don't hinder me. I need to be liberated. I need to have fun. Why does Paul say the body is not meant for sexual immorality? He says, but the Lord and and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined or glued to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee. Listen to this. Flee. Flee. Run from sexual immorality. The word immorality there is the word pornean. It's that ring true with anything that's going on in our culture. There is a dearth, especially to young men, in regard to pornography. It is a dearth. And, and church family, if we think that it cannot impact the church of Lord Jesus Christ, we're fooling ourselves. And the great fraud of pornography, and if you're dabbling with it, repent of it and run from it. But the great fraud of it is it promises you an intimacy that you cannot achieve. That's what it promises you. It is a fraud. It is a lie. And Christians should not be surrendering to a temptation that is a lie. It has no part in the life of the believer. And Paul says, flee from it. He's talking to Christians here, by the way. Oh, that's just people outside the church that do that. No, he's talking to believers. Flee from it. So it makes me uncomfortable to talk about. Yeah. Run. Get away from it. Why? Why? Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral persons sin against their own body. And why is that a sin? Look what he says. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify glorify God in your body. To put it another way, Christ has created the church for holiness. We think about, well, how do you define holiness? We think about holiness as perfect obedience. And there is certainly an aspect where holiness is, is perfect conformity to the law of God. Right? Would, would you guys agree with that? If I am obeying the law of God, not man-made laws, the law of God, I am in conformance with it. There's a, there's a picture of holiness that is moral in its nature. But there's another aspect of holiness that is incredibly important. It is the word in the Greek hagios, and it's the idea of being separate from that right there. Was this place a good place to be? Was that holy? What was that? Most holy. Separated. Apart. What was the picture God was trying to show Israel? I am wholly apart in who I am. And what does God tell tell Israel? Be ye holy, as I am holy. More than just compliance to God's law, it is be set apart. You're different. In revelation we see the term earth dwellers used frequently. You're not an earth dweller, the scripture says. In in uh, construction where I work frequently, we we have whenever we have an injury or a safety accident or incident, one of the common things that rears its ugly head is fit for purpose, we call it. You guys especially know what I'm talking about. Have you ever taken a tool that was meant for one thing and tried to do something else with it? Oh, this will work in a bind. You would have no idea how many, how many homemade tools I have confiscated on a job site before. We don't quite have a great tool that will do this, so we're going to make one. And what happens when you make a tool? It's not working according to spec and design. Tools are meant for a purpose. They're designed for a purpose. Fit for purpose. If I were to invite you over to our house for lunch, we're going to have some great food. We're going to have some great fellowship. You guys all show up at the house, and Nicole and I bring the food out of the bathroom. (laughs) Now, I know Jesse would stay. (laughs) What are you guys guys thinking at that point? Depends on how hungry I am. (laughs) Oh, that was on the Florida problem. Three-second rule. That would be off-putting, wouldn't it? It'd be really off-putting. Why? Don't you know? You don't cook dinner in the bathroom. It's not what it's made for. You, as the the indwelled temple of God, are not made for sexual immorality. That's what scripture is telling us. Spirit of God indwells you. You are his temple. Don't drag him into it. It's not what you're made for. It's not your purpose, your design. And it will steal intimacy. From the one that you are meant to be intimate with, which is the Lord Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. As we look at our temple slide here, think about this. Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments ex- expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but our fellow citizens. There's a great debate right now going on about what's going on in our border. Using that analogy and thinking about this as strangers and foreigners, what, what's the picture here? You're no longer outside the fence. What happens if I try to get here by cutting a hole or climbing a ladder or doing something to get in through the back door? What am I doing? That's, really, that's what religion is, by the way. Trying to get intimacy with God through my own means by hopping the fence, climbing the wall, breaking and entering, if you will. When my access is provided, how? Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, and quickly measure the altar. I want to keep this picture up here because this is important. How do I get here? Assuming I can't jump the fence or cut a hole in the back. And by the way, if I did manage to actually sneak in there, what would, I, what would happen? That. Yeah, they'd find my body lying on the floor. How do we get in here? He says, measure this. Measure this. What is this? The altar of incense. So everything in that picture is designed, designed to point to one thing, which is what? Christ. In the book of Revelation, we have an expanded picture of the altar of incense, which is right outside the Holy of Holies. In Revelation 6-9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number, listen to this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What is the imagery that the book of Revelation is giving us regarding the altar of incense? It's a picture of suffering of the saints. And notice that they're under the altar. There is no communication here that the suffering of the saints supersedes the suffering of who? Just because a saint suffers does not add to their salvation, nor does it pay for their sins. They're under Christ. But notice that they still suffer. How do I get here? This is an amazing picture of okay? If I am to come in from out here and I'm going to, to get to here, and that's where God has called me to be, I must go through there. What is he telling us? What is Jesus telling the church? No, he never did. You see the picture here? You see it? Revelation 8.3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. How do we really get to know Jesus? If the end goal is intimacy with God, how do I get to know him? How is that intimacy achieved for sure? Let's do, let's do this. Turn to Philippians chapter three. I promise I'm almost done. I want you to see this. On the question of how do I become intimately familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul answers that question for us. Philippians three, verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Speaking of confidence in the flesh, he continues, for though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, of the people or the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul traded in every earthly assurance he had of his own performance and traded it all for Christ. That's what he's saying here. Listen, verse eight, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The word know in the Greek there is referring to intimate experiential knowledge. So how, Paul, tell us, do we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ? For his sake, listen, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, listen to this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The word know, ginosko in the Greek, especially through personal experience, firsthand acquaintance. How do I know experientially the Lord Jesus? Well, guess what? The Lord Jesus intended for Paul to know him. And how did he accomplish that? He says it right here. He took me through suffering. The loss of all things. Paul's writing this from prison. He says, and may share, the word share there in the Greek is koinonia, um, what is shared in in common as a basis of fellowship. We get the word partnership, community, or communion, and may share his sufferings. Say, well, this is where you lose me. I don't like this. Just telling you what it says, that we may know him in the power, power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. I had a sister in Christ recently who asked me to preach her husband's funeral. Some of you folks know her. And I remember talking to her before the funeral service and her husband died of dementia. His mind just wasted away. And I remember talking to her and her testimony was that as hard as it was to care for him as he forgot everything, And his mind just evaporated. As hard as it was to deal with that and to go through that, she said, her relationship with Christ grew Mm. exponentially. Her intimacy with Christ grew exponentially. And because of that, she wouldn't trade it. Think about that. In her suffering, her relationship with the Lord Jesus deepened. Hmm. So back to the Garden of Gethsemane briefly. Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, <clears throat> he's burdened with the weight of what is about to happen. And he goes to pray and he says to his disciples in verse 38 of Matthew 26, my soul is is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and let look what he says and watch with me. What is he asking his disciples to do? Pray. Stay on guard. Do you have any idea what I am about to enter into? And he comes back, and what does he find? Sleep, sleep at the wheel. And he and he does this three times, and finally he tells them, verse forty-five: Sleep, take your rest. Later on, see the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand, and then we fast forward to after the resurrection in John chapter twenty-one. And the sheep are scattered. What are they doing after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and then resurrected? We find the disciples not exactly sure what to do. So what do they do? They go back to what they know. And Jesus walks up on the beach. And what are they doing? They're fishing. And Jesus makes breakfast for them. And they don't immediately recognize him except for John. John takes credit when you read John 21. I recognize him. It's my Lord. But the other disciples were a little slow on the draw. And Jesus invites them up to the beach, and then they recognize who it is. Peter, ashamed. And what does the Lord Jesus do to Peter? Feed my sheep. Yes. John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, the Lord lets them finish. Let's them eat their breakfast. He said, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. What is he telling Peter? And he does it three times. And we, we know why. How many times did Peter deny him? We know why the Lord makes him answer the question three times. You, and you know what Peter's thinking as he says it the third time. And he tells him, forget about the nets, Peter, be about the father's business. And what is the father's business? Feed my sheep. You're wasting time. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. He says, truly, I say to you, and this is what he tells Peter. And think, I want you to see the difference between Peter in the garden as he falls asleep and then ultimately betrays Jesus In front of everyone, this weak Peter that we look at with almost disdain, how could you deny the Lord Jesus? Look at what Jesus says to him when he couldn't stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane during his passion. He says in verse 9 or verse um, 18, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Say, well, what is Jesus talking about? Scripture tells us this. He said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What is Jesus telling Peter? If you want to know me, you must follow me. And he directly links that to what Peter is going to go through. Think about the growth that the Spirit of God brings about into the life of Peter, isn't it? It's amazing. Here's a man who denies Jesus three times to the, the scripture tell or the extra biblical historical data tells us that when they crucified Peter, they were about to put him on a cross and nail him just like they did the Lord Jesus. And the saying is, I don't want to be crucified like the Lord Jesus. I'm not worthy. Think about the difference between that man and the man that denied him three times. The man that fell asleep at the wheel in the garden. There's a great book I recommend by Charles Sheldon, and here's a quote from it. It's from In His Steps. It says, but if our definition of being a Christian is simply to enjoy the privileges of worship, be generous at no expense to ourselves, have a good and easy time, Surrounded by pleasant friends and by comfortable things, live respectably, and at the same time avoid the world's great stress of sin and trouble because it's too much pain to bear. If this is our definition of Christianity, surely we are a long way from following the steps of Him who trod the way with groans and tears and sobs of anguish for a lost humanity who sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, who cried out, on the upreared rear cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Thirdly, and lastly, measure those who worship. Those who worship before the throne. The word worship in the book of Revelation is used 12 times. And it's to set a contrast for us, as we will see as we get to Romans or Revelation chapter 13. It's first mentioned here in Revelation 11, that is the beast. But Jesus said in John chapter four, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a contrast between how the body of Christ, the real church, the genuine church worships God, and the pretend church worships God. Revelation 13 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, the lamb who was slain. So, question why did God want John to communicate to the church that we are numbered, that he has numbered us? Second Timothy two nineteen says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows. Who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Unlike the picture of the completed bride in Revelation 21 or the perfected bride, Revelation 11 shows a mixture between the inner and the outer courts. Verse 2 says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city 42 months. 42 months is the same amount of time that we all tripped on this morning as we read our text, the 1260 days. Same period of time. It's talking about the same exact amount of time. So we'll look at that next week in regard to the two witnesses. But just a note on that second verse that I want to leave you with. Matthew Henry says this. This prophetical passage about measuring the temple seems to refer to Ezekiel's vision. That's in Ezekiel 40. The design of this measuring seems to be the preservation of the church in times of public danger or for its trial or for its reformation. The worshipers must be measured whether they make God's glory their end and his word their rule in all their acts of worship. Those in the outer court worship in a false manner or with dissembling hearts. Now think about the picture that we talked about. If you're out here and you can't get here, what is that picture showing us? There's no intimacy. You're a pretender. Those in the outer court worship in a false manner or or, or with dissembling hearts and will be found among his enemies. God will have a temple and an altar In the world, till the end of time, he looks strictly to his temple. The holy city, the visible church is trodden underfoot. It's filled with idolaters, infidels, hypocrites. But the desolations of the church are limited and she shall be delivered out of all of her troubles. As we close this morning, I want to ask just a couple of questions. Jesse, can you go to that last slide? By way of application here, picture is clear when we really dig into it. We really examine it. God's design for his bride is intimacy. And he will purify and refine us and bring us into deeper fellowship and experiential knowledge of who he is so that we can say, like all, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is going to be key us understanding the rest of this chapter. So the question that I would ask you to take home with you this, this uh, now this afternoon, thank you for bearing with me. How is your intimacy with God? How is your intimacy with God? Are you conscious of his purpose for your life, that he is intending to set you apart, that your body is made as a temple of the Holy Spirit? That you are not an earth dweller, but you're destined for citizenship in heaven? Are you actively looking to remove sin in your life that would hinder your intimacy with him? That's the question. That's really the pertinent question this morning. How is your intimacy with him? You say, well, how does that work? What hinders our intimacy with God? It's my sin. Talked about it this morning. The biggest idol that we have to put down every single day, the biggest obstacle that we face is not the devil. It's me. The idol of me rears its head every single day and must be put down. How is my intimacy with him? Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What does that mean? The life of the Christian is confession and repentance and renewal. It's our life. We can't ignore sin in our lives and expect our intimacy to be unhindered with God. As I said a few minutes ago, it's of paramount importance. As you get close to dying, say, I hope that's not anytime soon. I hope not for you either but it could be today. As we get close to dying, is there anything more important than that question? How is my intimacy with God? Anything more important? How much is in my bank account? Is my will finished? Is it ready to go? Did I get the lawyer to sign it? How is my intimacy with God? Do I belong to him? Secondly, the church and the bride is measured and numbered to remind us something that is very important, that we are set apart that we are valued, we're special, we are eternal. Why are we special? Because Lord Jesus shed his blood to redeem us. That's what makes us special. We are eternally safe, we are sealed, and we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He is with us now. And Paul asks the question, who can separate us from the love of God? And you fill in the blank. The hardest thing you can possibly think of is covered in Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from God's love? Say, well, I'm afraid. Yeah. If I have to go through the fire of that altar to get to the Holy of Holies, that's going to hurt. I'm afraid. Well, if you said anything else, I'd say you're lying. Well, here's the encouraging thing for us. We don't go through it by ourselves. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, he is to take the mantle from Moses. And God says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We don't have to be afraid. He's with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us what you intend for us. Lord, I pray that you would make us conscious and sensitive and aware of the things that would hinder our intimacy with you. Father, that we would be set apart and recognize the fact that you are purifying your bride, even now, as we await your return. You're sanctifying your people. Pray that you would apply your word as you see fit this morning, that sinners would be converted. Father, that you would convict those of us that are confident in our sinfulness, that think we're okay, it's really not that bad. Other people do it. Whatever our excuse might be, Lord, we ask that you would break it down. Help us to see that sin is deceptive and it steals away our intimacy with you. And that our business as saints is to be confessing and forsaking it. And Father, even now enjoying the blessing of fellowship with you on this side of glory. We ask that you would strengthen us in our relationship with you. Prepare us for your coming, Lord, and we ask this in your name. Amen.